0: You are listening to the sixty-six, a podcast where we surveyed the Bible one book at a time. And uh, outside, it is sleeting. Everything's closed. The banks are closed. The schools are closed. Uh, the shops are closed. The stores are closed. Goods and services are shut down. The barbershop is closed also. The barbershop, obviously, from looking at at you. Yeah, I tried uh, to get a haircut. Kind of was your razor broken? Also, no. <laughs> I
1: usually get people that cut my hair to shave my face. So. Weird. Not really. I don't do
0: that. Uh, <laughs> it's like the Wild West up in here. Uh, everything's closed except for the post office and the, and the 66 podcast, and we're not raising our rates. <laughs> we're staying right here, baby. sleeting <laughs> <laughs> outside, but it's warm in here, and it's it's extra warm right now because we have a third body. Yes. This is something we've wanted to do for a long time, to get a third person. We we, we had to beg him because of the sleep, but we've got <laughs> Tim Layton with us, uh, and uh, we're glad to have him. And of course, uh, I'm Drew Kaiser, and we've got Andrew Kingsley on, as usual, and uh, we're looking forward to covering John chapter 4. Uh, John 4, there's a lot here, it's a mouthful, so it's we're going to kind of have to use our time wisely in the first section where we do a read-through. And this, we don't talk about this as much, uh, we don't talk about it much, but what we do this for is to give us a foundation for the discussion that follows in the second and the third uh, parts of the episode. So we're going to do a read-through of this, and of course everybody knows this as the chapter about Jesus' discussion with the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, She... She is part of this chapter, but we're also introduced at the end of the chapter to an official from Capernaum and the second sign that Jesus did in Cana. So, that again, like chapter three was divided up between Nicodemus and John the Baptist, we've got two characters that divide this chapter up the Samaritan woman and the official. I'll also remind you of the general outline that we're following for the book of John. Remember the letter P. The first part of chapter 1 is the prologue, and then from chapter 1, verse 19, to the, through the end of chapter 12, you have Jesus' public ministry. Chapter 13 through 17 is Jesus' private ministry. Then you have his passion ministry, chapters 18 through 20, and then you have a postscript, which, uh, you know, Andrew is the concept Andrew learned on the yes. air. He learned that P.S., Tim, he didn't know P.S. was post-script. Post-script. stood for postscript. Yeah. So uh, it's a very educational program here. We learn a lot about a lot of different things. Let's start reading. Uh, we talked about the baptisms last week and how Jesus was baptizing more than John at this point. And he decides it's time to go to Samaria. And in verse 4... The, the wording here is chosen very carefully as John says that he had to pass through Samaria. And there's a lot to say about that in the next section that I'm going to say for that time. But he and his disciples decide to pass through Samaria on their way from Galilee. No, I'm wrong. They've been in Jerusalem. So on their way mm-hmm. back home to Galilee from Jerusalem. And that's where they encounter this woman. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Again, something we've got to talk about in the next section. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? So I I saw I just noticed here a pattern from last week. Last week Nicodemus he says, Unless one is born again he cannot enter cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, Uh you want me to go into a mom? womb again yeah, and so he's not getting the the figurative significance of it and it's kind of similar here with the Samaritan woman she's like oh uh, living water I'd love to have this uh, new water system that you're talking about that I don't have to draw water from a well so where do you get that living water are you greater than our father Jacob he gave us the well and drank it from it himself as did his sons and his livestock And Jesus said to her, "This just like with Nicodemus, he gave her explanation. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she still didn't get it. Yeah. She's about to. Mm -hmm. Because... He changes the subject. And this is one of the most abrupt shifts in conversation I've ever heard. So she says, I want some water. And he says, go call your husband and come here. You know, it's just like, boom. Just Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Go call your husband. And she said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, another pattern. Isn't this the same thing that he did with Nathaniel, When Nathaniel said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then Jesus comes up and he says, "Nathaniel, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And I saw you when you were under the fig tree. And that's when Nathaniel all of a sudden woke up and realized that he's talking to the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And here, same thing. It's kind of one of those questions: Are there more than seven miracles in the Gospel of John? Well, there are seven signs, but then Jesus doesn't turn his omniscience on and off like a light switch, you know. Yeah. So he's this is omniscience that's always there. And John two twenty five says he knows what was in man, and he knows what is in this woman, and he knows that she has had a rather rocky marriage life, we will say. Mm-hmm. And uh, now she's just given up on marriage. She's living with a guy, and he knows that about it. It's kind of the innermost secrets of her heart. The stranger just walks up from another country and tells her all about herself. In fact, later she'll go and tell her her people in verse 29, see a man who told me all that I ever did. This is what changes her mind about him and makes her realize that he's talking about something besides H2O, Mm -hmm. right? So, um, verse 20, she starts making this contrast between the Samaritans and the Jews. Our fathers, so she's talking about the fathers of the Samaritans, worshipped on this mountain, and we'll learn later that she's talking about Mount Gerizim, which was a place of worship in Samaria. But you say that in Jerusalem, this is what Jews say, is the place where people ought to worship. And he said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So she says, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now I don't know if it's coincidence, but I think it's interesting. The the words aren't slapped together, but I am is in that sentence. Mm-hmm. And it's very similar to what we'll start running into over and over again in the book of John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the shepherd, the good shepherd. And then of course the statement he makes to the Pharisees that makes them want to throw rocks at him. Uh before Abraham was, I am. So I am he. Mm-hmm. Is what he says here, I am the Messiah. So the disciples come back, verse 27, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So she leaves and she makes this report, we see in verse 29, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And you need to understand Christ and Messiah are the same word here. And so everybody from the town goes out to see him. Meanwhile, the disciples are trying to get him to eat and he turns that into another teaching saying my food is to do the will of him who sent me he says look i tell you verse 35 lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest and they look up and they see all of these samaritans from the town of this woman coming out and coming out to him and uh, they believed in him verse 39 says because of the woman's testimony And the testimony is quoted as, He told me all that I ever did. Uh, So they try to get him to stay, and um, more believed on him, and uh, they came to believe not just because of the testimony, but because of him, of being Mm -hmm. in his presence.
1: They saw and they heard for themselves. Right. 42.
0: Yeah, so he stays with them, and then he goes to Galilee, and uh, he spends some time there. Now, the second part of the chapter has to do with the official's son. Uh, There's an official in Capernaum, which is the Roman capital of Palestine. The Jewish capital of Palestine is Jerusalem, of course. Mm -hmm. But Capernaum comes up. Wait, I'm messing this up. I'm getting Capernaum mixed up with Caesarea. Capernaum is an important city in Galilee. Yeah. Uh, And it's the home base of operations for Jesus Christ. It's not the Roman capital of Palestine, erase that. We'll go back and fix it in the editing. We'll get our producer to work on that. Okay, so they're in Capernaum. They're not in Caesarea. But anyway, this official, and uh, I take this to be a Roman official from Capernaum, um, goes to Cana, where the first sign was worked, the wedding, water to wine. And uh, he wants Jesus to heal his son, who was at the point of death. And Jesus says this, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus says, verse 50, Go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And something really strange happens. As he's going down, he meets his servants on the way who are there to tell him that his son has been healed. Mm -hmm. And so it just out of curiosity asks, at what point did he turn around? You know, mm-hmm. when, at what point did he start feeling better? And it was the seventh hour, which was the same time that Jesus said, your son will live. Mm-hmm. And John tells us, this is the second sign.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting to me, the faith of this official, and that's kind of the paradigm for all of the people that Jesus heals they all have a faith that he can heal whoever it is that's sick, whether it's themselves or a child or, or whoever it is. They always have this faith. And in Matthew, so many times they say, if you are willing, then heal me. And Jesus always says, I am. You know, be healed or whatever. So, it's What just, about
0: Lazarus?
1: I guess Lazarus couldn't ask. He was... <laughs> He was in, I mean, in a state of not being able to ask.
0: Well, the reason I say that is the charismatics, you know, whenever somebody goes up with a obvious physical problem that a faith healer can't handle, he'll say, well, you you know, one excuse that's made is, well, he didn't have enough faith. So you kind of have to mm-hmm. be careful with that and because it has been abused. But yeah. the point obviously is belief in Jesus is important. I mm-hmm. mean, that's what the sign yeah. is all about and we talked about this this term sign instead of using the term miracle miracle emphasizes power but sign says these miracles are about something else and if i were to look at this one which is one of the lesser discussed miracles from from all the gospel accounts i think the the sign the symbol is and you guys may have a different opinion about it but it's pointing to the necessity of just putting all your trust in Jesus and believing him for salvation mm-hmm. which is what we do today so
1: yeah it's definitely foreshadowed here at the very least
2: yeah anything else we want to say before we take a break you know just i guess this may be the first instance of this remote healing that um that Jesus does and um I don't know, I, I wonder what the, what the significance might be other than just that it's another extension of how great his power is, right. that Jesus doesn't even have to be there in order for the healing to occur. And you see the effect of it is not only um, not only this man believing, but all of those who were on the other end of participating in this miracle, all of the household. Believed as well, right? Mm-hmm. It's
0: a, it's a little detail that's included there that kind of adds to the you know it, it adds to the healing. The healing in and of itself would be you know something that would catch your eye, but then you know the fact that it's long distance, and there are there are others that um, you know there are other examples of the long distance. Healing or something, right? I can't I can't think specifically what is it what it is with Jarias' daughter. Well didn't he see isn't she the one he that see he see her. He had to go up in the upper room of Peter, James and John for her. Mm-hmm. But there was in you know, as he was on his way, there was another example similar to that where this woman, without his knowledge, touched the hem of his garment and he mm-hmm. felt the power go from him and so it's like You've got two miracles going on at once. You've got the healing, and then the fact that, you know, just by touching him, she was healed. And here, there's like the long distance aspect of it, and the healing. Um, So, miracles come in a variety of ways, and there's there's a lot of detail uh, that's given in some cases. And sometimes, you know, we just read that he healed. And, Tim, you haven't been here for this whole series, of course, but... We've already talked a lot about, in John, how we're just getting seven signs. And John says at the end of the book, you know, if we were to write them down, the world would not hold the books. Right. There wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain them. We're back, and we are glad that you have joined us and listened up to this this point. Those of you that uh, turned us off and are listening to other things, uh, we don't need you anyway. But we're glad that uh, those of you that are still with us are here. And uh, we uh, covered quite a bit of territory, talking about mostly the Samaritan woman and discussing a little bit about this official and his son that was sick in some way. I want to go back now, and what we do in this second section... Is think a little deeper about some of the things that we we studied, and this this is the part where Tim, Andrew, and I usually just talk about what we think is most interesting. Sure. So at the end, we we get down to you know what the text is really about, or or we're supposed to, and we give some practical lessons about you know what you can take home from this. But right now, we just like to talk about things. But there is there is something that we need to go in terms of background. We need to go to so you can even understand this and what's really going on, and that has to do with the Samaritans and the, and the region of Samaria. Mm-hmm. You know, The first indication that something is a little different is in verse 4, where John uses this language saying that he had to pass through Samaria. Now, if you're reading that as a geographical comment, you're reading it wrong. Because the normal way that a Jew traveled from Judea where Jerusalem was and where Jesus and his disciples had been to the north in Galilee where Nazareth and Cana and Capernaum all these places were was to go uh, to cross the Jordan River going east go up north through the province of Perea going thus around circumventing Samaria and then to cut across the Jordan again going west into Galilee Thus, bypassing totally the uh, area of Samaria, and we'll talk about why they hated each other
2: so much in a minute. But, but they would do that because of the, hate th- the hatred.
0: Yeah, that was the normal route, and it took you know a lot longer. Uh, the journey took about seven days to do it. The d- direct route only took three days. So you could read. Uh, first of all, let's eliminate the interpretation. That he had to go through Samaria because that was the only way to go. Most people Mm -hmm. would not have gone that way. Now somebody could say that he was in a big hurry. And so he needed to save four days. But the content of the rest of the chapter leads me to a third interpretation, which is he had a mission in Samaria. He purposely put himself in a place to meet this woman to meet the Samaritan and minister to her. That's the way I read it. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, I know that there can be some arguments about, you know, maybe he was in a or hurry. Why would he be in a hurry? i never seen Jesus in a hurry, you know. I'm just curious as to, is he trying to meet a
1: deadline way. to get back to I mean, I don't At a know cabinet that a he needed
0: to make? Or, <laughs> you know, by this point, he was all about, you know, traveling in. Meeting as many people as possible, and this was new territory. Mm-hmm. But this is typical John. You know, he's not going to tell us the motives. He's just going to say he had to do it. So either he was in a hurry, or he had a ministry to perform there in Samaria.
1: I'm not sure he would have been in a hurry because verse 43 says after the two days he departed for Galilee. Oh yeah, right. So he hung out. We there can eliminate for a that one.
0: They they asked him to stay a couple of days, and he's like, yeah.
1: Yeah, if he was in a hurry, I don't think he would have stayed a few days. Right. And I meant to mention this in the read section, but I didn't want to stop you. Verse 45 says, uh, He came to Galilee, the Galileans welcome, having seen all he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So a lot of those people from Galilee, when he was overturning the tables and hitting the animals with the whips, and we talked about how it was fun to think about him you know, hitting the money changers with them too, trying to get them out of there. Mm Mm-hmm. a lot of the Galileans were there, yeah. They saw it, so it's just interesting. Yeah, I've never noticed it. You know, they've seen it, and Jesus comes back, and they're all welcoming, welcoming him. You know, maybe thinking, you know, in the back of their heads. Well, we've be nice to this guy, or because oh. you saw what he did in Jerusalem, or you know, yeah. maybe they know. that Well, they Jesus had a problem with you know.
0: this abuse of the temple too. You know, I mm-hmm. think with the with the common folk. He became a hero in their eyes for that kind of stuff, whereas I'm sure he enraged the religious establishment in Jerusalem.
1: Do com- you think it's just as simple as he saved them from having to spend some money when they went up there? Because we talked about how they put a, they put those certain tables in there because those people had to have those things, and it was a lot easier to buy them when you got there rather yeah, the than have to herd a- them all the way over there and...
0: Uh, I don't know. I kind of feel uh-huh. like they they it's more a
1: morality
2: issue
0: than Yeah, a... yeah. Okay. I mean,
2: again, we're speculating. Yeah. You know, we we're talking about verse 43 and 45 there, so I have to ask about this parenthetical statement in verse 44, which of course, you know, we we've, we've heard in relation mm-hmm. to Jesus before. I'm not sure we have before in the book of John. Not in John, mm-hmm. I think
0: Luke says it in Luke right.
2: 4 this idea that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Yeah. And uh, I was reading a, a little comment here in relation to this that that was alluding to the fact in, in verse 45 that, you know, it says that they welcomed him, but sort of a conditional welcome because they welcomed him having seen these wonders that he had done, uh, mm-hmm. all, the, all that he had done in, in Jerusalem, um, not that just they welcomed him on their own, so it, it, I guess my real question is, sort of, you know, why why is verse forty four there?
0: I don't know why it's there. That's um, a good question because you read the verses around it. It says that he went back home, and then John says, "For a prophet is without honor in his home." Yeah, and so I and wonder then afterwards
2: if it says they welcomed him. Right. So, so you know, is it is it the fact that they welcomed him, having seen all that he had done, and they didn't just didn't welcome him naturally as as the Messiah, you know, coming back home. But, you know, we've got to welcome him. He's got all this power. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, you well, know, it, it's, maybe
0: it's a contrast to the Samaritans who have already decided that he's the Messiah right. and he is the prophet. And then maybe John's signaling to us that it's a different kind of crowd here. Much more skeptical. I don't know. I...
1: Well, I think their problem didn't come in because he heals... The official son who's from Capernaum. But what's interesting is in Luke chapter 4, uh, I think probably the point where the Galileans got really upset with him was when he read that scripture from Isaiah and then said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And that might be when they started because it says, They say in verse 22 of Luke uh, 4, Is this not Joseph's son? And then in verse 23, Jesus says, Doubtless you will quote to me the proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So it looks like the fact that, you know, the episode with the official son had already happened at this point.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I, I guess if we're looking at it of he did a lot of stuff in Capernaum. And I wonder how uh, McGarvey's fourfold gospel that you gave me yesterday, or a couple of days ago, would do this. But it looks like that episode comes in or comes after you know he gets back to Galilee they greet him they welcome him he I, I don't know but you know what like I just uh,
0: maybe maybe it's an explanation as to why he went to Cana because he's not that's not his hometown it's in yeah. Galilee but he didn't go he didn't go to Nazareth and he didn't go to Capernaum. I think by this point, didn't he... Okay, so... Luke 4 back says back up, he's in Nazareth. He moves he to Capernaum, him, though. In John two twelve, he and his family moved to Capernaum. And then when he's coming back from Judea, though, it says he's without two days. He departs for Galilee. Prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So he went to Galilee, and they all were excited about what he had done. So verse forty six. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he'd made the water wine. Mm-hmm. Those people certainly believed in him. Yeah. Because of the, maybe that's all it is. I I don't know. That's. I don't know,
1: but I do think for the Jews the reason they had a problem with Jesus is because he kept equating himself or making himself you know I'm the fulfillment of this. I'm like you said that statement that got him so upset before Abraham was I am. Mm -hmm. So I think the things that made them dislike Jesus were not even so much of his teachings other than his teachings that I am straight from heaven. I am from God. I think that was where the Jews kind of drew the line. and were like, okay, this guy's crazy.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's get back to the Samaritans Uh, because we mentioned the racial prejudice. What, What was that all about? I'll give you a little history here. More than likely, in fact almost assuredly, the Samaritan race originated with the Assyrian domination of the northern kingdom of Israel, which occurred in 722 BC. Uh, The capital city of the northern kingdom, the Ten Tribes of Israel, was Samaria. So the Samaritans probably had something to do with the toppling of Samaria, now what the Assyrians would do is they would take the, the native people out of their land, move them to another land, and repopulate the area with captives from other places. And so in Second Kings 17.24 we read that there are people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, Sepharvaim, um, others were moved in according to Ezra 4.10. And they left the poorest of the land to cultivate the land and make it profitable for Assyria, according to 2 Kings 24, verse 14. So those Israelites almost had no choice but to intermarry with the Canaanites, the the foreign peoples that were in their land, which was against the law of Moses to do that. But these were Mm -hmm. different circumstances than the ones in which the law of Moses were written. Uh, so the Jews, they get a couple hundred years, 150 years later, they're um, uh, conquered by Babylon. And they're taken mm-hmm. into Babylonian captivity, but their return home was different. Uh, they come back to Judea as a whole people, a preserved remnant. That's in about 536 B.C., and that's when the hatred began to boil between the Samaritans in the north and the, quote-unquote, purebred Jews. Mm -hmm. And that enmity was based on racial differences, but they also made worse by um, this temple that the Samaritan woman makes reference to in um, verses 20 and 21 when she says, uh, she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Now, she didn't mention the temple because I understand that it was destroyed by John Hyrcanus... Um, you know, 120 years or so before this conversation took place. So uh, the temple's no longer standing, but they had started to worship on this rival temple in Mount Gerizim, built during the days of Alexander the Great, which would have been in that intertestamental time period, not recorded in the Old Testament or the New Testament. In other words, between Malachi and Matthew before the birth yeah. of Jesus Christ. So it was there, um, you know being built as the Jews were trying to rebuild Jerusalem. And, um, you know, when we did our series on Ezra and Nehemiah, did Nehemiah not invite these people to come join their efforts to rebuild the walls and to, to yeah. settle the land? And uh, he he didn't get much of a response from that. Uh, So he was trying to kind of rebuild it, but he didn't get a whole lot of response from this, and that didn't help matters either. Uh, There's a Jewish document written in the 2nd century B.C., and here's what it says. Two nations I detest, and a third is no nation at all. The inhabitants of Mount Seir, that's the Edomites, the Philistines, and the senseless folk that live at Shechem, that's the Samaritans. Well, the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. The Samaritans were, you know, intermarried people, but still kind of related to the Jews. So two-thirds of this group were people that were related to the Jews. And this document saying, you know, I detest them and they're senseless folk. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the Samaritans weren't innocent either. I mean, they also had problems with the Jews. And Luke tells us about that in Luke chapter 9 where near the end of that chapter, Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, but there's a village that would not allow Jesus and his disciples to stay there, and that's when James and John get their nickname, Sons of Thunder. Uh, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy these people? And Jesus is like, no, uh, not, please don't do that. I don't know if they had the power to do that, but he discouraged them from doing that. That's not what he was all about. So the bottom line is that there was bad blood between these people created through the intermarriage, the destruction of the lost ten tribes of Israel, uh, the lack of cooperation in the days of Nehemiah, the rival temple built during the days of Alexander the Great. John Hyrcanus, if you don't don't know who who he was, he was part of the independence movement of the Jews against the Seleucids, which was a Greek people. And, um, you know, it was kind of a nationalistic Jewish time. And uh, that was seen as something that was um, against Judaism. So that's why he tore it down. Yeah. Um, but evidently they were still worshiping on the mountain even though the temple wasn't there anymore. It gives you a little background on the Samaritan race and helps you understand, you know, verse 27. Because the Jews, uh, the disciples come back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, I guess we need to talk about that. You know, they marveled not just that he was talking to a Samaritan, but another social taboo that he uh, committed was that he was talking with a woman. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know it's my understanding that a woman was not to be seen in public with anyone unless it was a relative like a, a husband, a father or a brother. And otherwise, you were seen as maybe immoral if you were talking with a woman in public.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, there were uh, rabbinic documents that actually warn against speaking to women in public. And it's probably based on the fact that, you know, you got to be careful about it because you could be ensnared by a woman. And that's where mm-hmm. some of the rabbinic things come from. So I guess on the surface, you know, it doesn't look good. Kind of like it doesn't look good, you know, for a minister to be with the door shut alone in his office, or, you know, something like that, uh, yeah. just Those are two
0: different things, yeah, though. Two, two different because, things. but You know, Jesus is obviously not agreeing with that stringent moral code, code. And we're seeing parallels to it in the Islamic world, in some of the countries, Islamic countries, under Sharia law where a woman, you know, is just not allowed to even allow her face to be seen. Mm-hmm. She can't be seen with a man. You know, the women are being just stoned to death in some of these places and um, mistreated in so many ways. There was the, the Pakistani girl that uh, was uh, on a school bus one day, and she, she had been writing a blog ab- against some of the offenses to women in Islam, and, and a guy got on the bus. You remember this in the news? A guy got on the bus and shot her in the face, and uh, she was one of the nominees for the Nobel Peace Prize last year. I forget her name, mm. but that kind of attitude has always been in that part of the world, and we see it, you know, here in Samaria, and among Jesus' disciples, and they, you know, they marvelled, but nobody dared say anything to him. You know, they just are shocked about it. So he's breaking all kinds of social cues here by talking to a Samaritan, talking to a Samaritan woman. Um, you know, I'm sure the disciples were very uncomfortable with a lot that, that he was doing.
2: You know, I wonder in, in the relationship that the Jews and the Samaritans had at this time and you know, all the all the reasons that you talked about where it probably, you know, bred over over time. Um, I wonder how much they might be like people are today where it's almost like after generations and a few hundred years, people don't know why they don't like each other. They yeah, just had, don't like each other. Had Hatfields and yeah. McCoys kind of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, how much of it was that, uh, you know, that they grow up, Knowing why I don't like a Jew or why I don't like a Samaritan or it's just hey you know we, we don't have anything to do with those those folks yeah mm-hmm.
0: well those are good thoughts let's take another break and come back you know and talk about some practical lessons that we gained from this section there there are quite a few.
1: thing we want to take from John 4 and apply, is the fact that Jesus talked to this woman at the well, and there were three big issues with it, which uh, Pastor Drew just pointed out to us uh, in the break, and that is, or well, you're going to tell me now, I think I've forgotten them now, and that is...
2: Uh, I try to
0: feed him information in the break, and he forgets it.
2: Yeah. Uh, that I mean, funny line just threw you completely Yeah, it dead. did He's I more concerned thinking, about calling me pasta
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking I shouldn't have said that Were you calling I me pasta?
0: That.
1: Pasta?
2: Like spaghetti?
0: Fizzoli?
1: No Anyway, there are three things here She's a Samaritan She's a woman, obviously And she is not moral She's not morally sound
0: Just say it, Andrew An adulterer An adulterer Can you not say yeah. that? I didn't Adulter. want to say
1: it It was too harsh but Jesus still talks to her anyway, and that is why the disciples are surprised when I talked about that. But the way it applies to us is everybody deserves to hear the gospel. Jesus himself did not use the reasons that he had not to speak to this woman. Uh, he spoke to her anyway and offered her living water. That applies to us because we should be doing the exact same thing. You now I'm thinking of in Luke 19, when Jesus talks to Zacchaeus. It's the same thing. He goes to eat with him, and all the people start grumbling about him. Uh, and they say, basically, look, at he goes and eats with a man who's a sinner.
0: Yeah, and, Matthew's house, Mark 2. Mm-hmm. Matthew's the tax collector. Uh, he has a big party of tax collectors. And Jesus eats with him, and he's crit- criticized for that.
1: Yeah, and but he does it anyway. And for us today, I think we should be willing to teach the gospel to people that don't look or talk or live exactly like we do.
0: Well, you know, let's draw a connection between that point and that parenthetical statement that we were talking about in verse 44. So Jesus is being accepted by a woman who is nothing like him, but the people who are like him will have nothing to do with him. Hmm. And when we avoid people because they're different, we're probably pushing away the most receptive crowd. You know, maybe that's an answer, one of the reasons why the church isn't growing like it should. Because we are not reaching out to people based on prejudice or, you know, they make us uncomfortable. They're different from us. They live in a different place from us. And a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. So get out of your hometown. Go to people who are indifferent. Go to people who are hurting, people who are messed up, people who have made mistakes. Those are the ones searching for forgiveness.
2: Those are the ones looking for the gospel, seeking. And I think there's you know sort of two things sometimes that hold us a- away from from those people, and one is our prejudice, um, and the second is that we have this terrible thought sometimes that. Um, Unspoken thought that these folks won't remain faithful, and so you know why is it you know look how messed up they are, you know how how are they going to get out of that? Well, even if we're successful in, in teaching and baptizing them, they're going to go right back to that, and so we make these assessments on our own that um, you know that that in effect they're not worthy of the gospel. Uh, and for, and for it's really a,
0: a judgment on them, and it's a judgment on the gospel, because the gospel can't change people. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what we're saying. If we and I think you're right that 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 fear is there a lot of times. If I get this person, you know, to be baptized, they won't be back the next Sunday. Well, that's a lack of faith in the gospel, right. and in yeah, God, yeah. because you know, Paul said, "I planted, Apollos watered." God gave the growth, 1 Corinthians 3, 6. And, you know, that keeps us, that kind of attitude keeps us out of a lot of trouble and has us casting the seed indiscriminately upon all kinds of soil instead of just the one that
2: looks exactly like us. And I guess the last thing that it does is, um, you know, sometimes it's a lack of faith in ourselves because... You know, bringing people like that into God's family, you know, then we have a responsibility to them to help them, to help them remain, to help them remain faithful, to help them grow. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, sometimes maybe we're not uh, giving ourselves a lot of credit for the ability to help those people do those things Mm -hmm. Uh, because we, we play a huge role going out and getting those people and teaching them the gospel. And then helping them grow in Christ.
0: Right, right. Yeah. All right. Well, um, let's go to let's go to another point on worship. You know, this is a text that is used a lot. John chapter four verse twenty four. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So you know, the, there's an obvious application here which is, well, there are several about worship. Number one, worship is a must. You know, we must worship Him. Worship is an obligation, but, you know, we should look at it as a privilege, yes. But how can you call yourself a Christian and not want to adore and praise your God? Number two, the proper object of acceptable worship is God. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Number three, the proper attitude of worship is in spirit. And I, I think we all know what that means. I mean, you know, with your heart in it. Um, understanding what you're singing, believing what you're praying, mm-hmm. believing that, you know, prayer changes things and that there's somebody on the other end of the of the prayer. Uh, So, uh, you're engaged in it. You're not just sleeping through it. Much more than just going through the motions. Yes, exactly. Pretty much the
1: opposite of what the Pharisees do in their worship. Or in the Sermon on the Mount, you see Jesus saying, you know, don't fast like the Pharisees do because they disfigure their faces They love to be seen. Don't pray like they do. Don't give like they do. All aspects of worship, as we recognize them today, But the Pharisees were not doing them in truth. They were not doing them in spirit because what they were looking for was the uh, accolades of their peers. And when we do that in our services, you know, if we get up to say a prayer, and and this is probably more of a struggle for preachers, I would assume, you know, and I have to remind myself all the time when I speak, this is not about how I deliver this message, this is about the message itself. Mm -hmm. You know, even if I fumble through all the words and everything. The point of a preacher giving his message should not be, you know, I want people to say that this is a great sermon, or I want everybody to be uh, just captivated the whole time or whatever. And I think we all get uh, backwards on that all the time. Uh, if it's not a captivating sermon, it's not a good sermon is how we think. I don't think a lot of people would like to hear the Apostle Paul preach, because uh, he says he's not that great of a speaker, or know, mm-hmm. not that impressive to hear speak. But we've got to be careful about our motives, when we are in church, or when we are worshiping as the church together, whatever it is, because what Jesus tells them in the Sermon on the Mount is basically, he says, "Truly I say to you, they have received their reward." So if we are in our services in order to to hear a you know a moving twenty minute speech, you know, and not to actually hear the gospel and be changed by it and go home and change our lives based on what we've heard then we're going to get what we're looking for. You know, you're know, you going to be entertained for 20 minutes, but that's all you're going to get.
0: I'm having trouble getting past the 20-minute thing. Or,
1: sorry. <laughs> 30, 45, 50 an hour.
0: There, there is a delicate balance, though, right? Because, I mean, if you take that too far, then you're not doing your... The worship leaders aren't doing their job with excellence. Mm-hmm. So this is like this balance between... I want to do this with excellence so that we can give our very best to God and so worship can be uplifting and yeah. attractive to you know our guests who are not Christians, you know and and they they need to see the spirit come out, need to see it expressed. A worship leader has that responsibility to help people express their spirit. I think but it then all comes Do it back. without showboating. You know, it's Exactly. It's right. like It's it's really kind of a difficult thing. I think it comes back to your motives and
1: that's something you know that we don't we're not not able to read about people. But if your motive to make your sermon or to make your song leading or your prayer a great sermon, great song service, great prayer for the spiritual benefit of everybody, that's fantastic. But if your motive is for self promotion, that's where that's where you get into trouble. And it's impossible to to tell so maybe prayer on. is
0: really helpful in this, you know mm. we should do more praying before we lead singing or prayer the prayer before the prayer or the sermon preaching, of course, and you know in that prayer ask for a humble heart mm-hmm. to hide behind the cross, but also to, to perform your responsibility with excellence. To be and,
1: more concerned about worship than your performance, I guess if you want
0: to use the word
1: performance. Tim's but a
0: song leader. We're we're preachers. We, mm-hmm. you you lead singing for us, Andrew? But mm-hmm. I I don't know if I should no, get no. into this. We can cut it out later. It Seems to be more of a temptation for song leaders than preachers. I, I don't know. There's something not you. <laughs>
1: okay. Well, um, I mean,
2: I think. Yeah, what I, is that?
1: I think I mean, it's just because you're singing, period, and singing is like more yeah it.
2: it's more of a presentation art or something. Yeah, right? you speaking, know, it's uh, I get
1: ten times more nervous before leading singing than I do really giving a sermon. Yeah, it, and I'm glad that you know sometimes I complain about not being loud enough because we turn the mics down low when the song, but I'm glad <laughs> because it takes a lot of the pressure off. Yeah. I just give that first note and then. It, you know, not everybody's having to hear me sing the whole mm-hmm. time. But uh, yeah, I think song leading is definitely a. For, just from my
0: point of view, I think song a leading is bigger some... temptation than that. But I don't think the song leaders see what we see. The The ones that, that do the. And I shouldn't just pick on them because we also have marathon prayers. And, you know, it's the people in the audience, I don't think they're ever like. When some guy just showboats up there, the people definitely compliment song leaders, but I've never heard somebody compliment a song leader who has gone over the top with the singing, you know. And
2: yeah. and you know, a lot of this is just like Andrew was saying a while ago, is that um you know, this this whole idea is what's the intent? Because you know, some of those people may be just trying to do the job to the best of their ability, and they mm-hmm. think about this yeah, idea we know. of, of yeah, doing not. something in spirit as I want to do it with, you know, the greatest amount of joy and love, enthusiasm, enthusiasm in my heart as I can, and sometimes it may come out looking like a show. Um, mm-hmm. Unintentionally. Unintentionally, yeah. right, because, um, you know, I... I think there are probably very few people out there who really want to you know want to detract from God in the worship setting mm-hmm. you know but sometimes it just doesn't it, it it may be received in a different way than it you know than it was given mm-hmm. um, yeah um and you know the ones that we're we're not talking about here in in this whole mix you know we're talking about preachers and song leaders but um, you know all of us have had uh, in, in our roles the opportunity to face the and I won't say the audience because they're not supposed to be the audience right but um, you know one of the greatest challenges that we have sometimes is looking out over a group that don't seem very joyful yes and um, and and that's that's the part that um, you know we're you know, numerically speaking, there's one song leader and there's one preacher and there's a couple people leading prayers. But there's hundreds of people out there who um, sort of help in the determination of the collective spirit of a worship service to God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's, you know, where everybody's responsibility is to be a contributor, mm-hmm. you know, to that worship. And, and I'm not just talking about singing out, but just being involved and active in everything that's going on and being glad to be there
0: yeah yeah. the the last point from that which I think is the fourth from that little short verse is that it's regulated by truth and so we you know look at what the New Testament church did in worship and we express our worship in those approved ways and, you know, we typically talk about them in five expressions and, you know, that includes singing and praying and preaching and uh, giving and the Lord's Supper. Did I leave one out? I think that's five. So that gets that
2: lesson there from about worship. You want to move on to another one? Before you go, um, yeah. I, I just want to throw this out and and we use this verse, and we've spent our whole time talking about this verse in the context of the formal worship service. Mm-hmm. Yet, the context of this, I mean, they're not in a, a formal worship, right? They're talking about wor- worshiping God. and But I, I guess, maybe, can we talk about for just a second what this means in, in this context? Yeah. You know, we're we're talking about worship, uh, but not necessarily the worship service, and what this worship right. means in relation to our worship to God, generally speaking. I, yeah. I think what he's saying
0: is that there, there's going to be a day where it doesn't matter if you're a Samaritan or a Jew, we're all going to be worshiping together because it's not going to be about worshiping at this place or that place, but it's going to be about worshiping God in spirit and truth. I think wherever you are. Yeah, I think it is. Because it's, it started with her saying our fathers worshipped on this mountain but you guys worship in Jerusalem, Jerusalem. and that's what makes us different.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, it goes all the way back to what we've seen a few times now in John is this idea of the spirit versus the flesh or the physical versus the spiritual. You know, in her mind, worship is very physical. You know, it's got to be here. It's got to be there. And in those... Temples, what they're doing is they're offering the sacrifices, priests are offering prayers. This is not the synagogue kind of worship, which would be more similar to our worship that we do on a Sunday and on a Wednesday. Mm-hmm. But Jesus is saying, you know, there's coming a time when or you need to understand that God is spirit. And if you want to worship God, you're going to have to worship Him spiritually and not just physically. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more than just there the actions. De-
0: yeah, and it speaks to the debate between which. Which side has the true worship? Mm-hmm. Because in verse twenty three he uses that phrase When the hour's coming now here when the true worshippers will and you know, if he stopped there we'd think, okay, is he going to say worship at Mount Gerizim or is he going to say worship at Jerusalem? But he says, Worship in spirit and truth. Mm-hmm. That that's that's going to be what's important. And that's the time we live in now. It's not, you know, whether you're a Jewish Samaritan or a Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem, but it's—is your heart engaged, and is it mm-hmm. true? Is it true? And, and and I do think that you know truth isn't just about the five expressions of worship, but it's it's deeper than that. I think it includes that, right. and you know, but we maybe this is what you're saying, Tim. We proof text this thing to death right. yeah. and forget what you know the the whole meaning is. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about evangelism a little bit. We already have a little, because we said one of the lessons that we brought up was about you know discrimination mm-hmm. and how that stops our evangelism in its tracks. But here's another one, and I'm going to lead into this with a comment that I hear all the time, and it drives me crazy. And it's, people just don't want to hear the gospel anymore. Mm-hmm. You go out and you try to share the gospel with people and they're just not interested in the truth. They're just not interested in it. And I think all that is, is an excuse to sit around and do nothing. Mm -hmm. Now, while some people are saying that, and I've I've heard gospel preachers say that, Jesus is saying, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And so that would be a third lesson that I would bring up is the fields are white for harvest and we need we need to pray for more laborers which is what he what he wants us to do pray for more harvesters more people to come out and accomplish the work. Yeah. And I think
1: on the flip side of that. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't I didn't mean to. No,
0: you didn't. Right. Okay. okay.
1: I think on the flip side of that, you know, if we're in a situation where we feel like no one is interested in the gospel, Pray for an opportunity to reach somebody. And I think that that is something that that we just almost forget that we have an option to do, almost. You know, we just kind of, we work really hard to make things happen, or maybe we just sit around we're waiting on something to happen, but whatever it is, I'm a firm believer that if we pray, if you pray for an opportunity to have somebody to reach, then that opportunity is going to come your way, and you need to be ready to act on that opportunity. But So I agree with you. I think the whole nobody's interested, that's just a cop-out. Well, Total I mean,
0: cop you know, I know he spoke these words 2,000 years ago in the time before the church was established when this message had not, you know, reached the ends of the earth. So it was a different time, and I guess it's a fair question. Does this statement still apply? I think that it does, and I don't mm-hmm. think that you know that people don't respond until you go out and talk to them. And and I'm sorry, but a lot of folks that are out there saying nobody wants to hear the gospel, they're not talking to people. Especially in the state of Alabama. I mean, goodness gracious! If you don't think if you think people
1: in Alabama aren't interested in the gospel, go move to New York and try and do some mission work there. I got a really good friend of mine lived in New York for a while. Mm -hmm. Had the hardest time finding. You know, she just it was really tough for her because she didn't. Feel like there was nearly as much of a respect for God up there as there is down here. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, if if we live down here in the South, you know, I think we take for granted the fact that the majority of people down here do believe. The majority of the people down here are at least interested, uh, compared to other places where you go, and hardly anybody is.
0: Yeah. Uh, one more lesson. Uh, one convert. Is important. You know, somebody may just bring one person to Christ in their whole life. Maybe they've tried a lot, but one convert can be exponential in its results. Here we have this woman. Jesus just talked to her. She goes out and brings a whole village to him, and suddenly there are many, many more believed because of the Word. And, uh, you know, you never know who that particular convert's going to be. You know, it reminds me of the parable of the sower as it is told in Matthew that uh, some bear fruit 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, uh, you know, that's just the way opportunities are. This is the way talents go. Every convert is important. You never know if it's the one that's going to turn into somebody who becomes a preacher and baptizes thousands of people.
2: And, you know, I think... Um, the idea that we're talking about here with, um, you know, we talked about prejudice and people different than us. Um, you know, I think the, the more we attempt to evangelize those people that are different than us, the more likelihood we are to find a person like the Samaritan woman. Mm-hmm. Because by nature, people who are not like us are not the people who are around us. But you find that right person who you teach the truth to, and they have a completely different circle of friends right. and influence than you do. Yeah. That opportunity for the gospel to be spread has just gone into a completely new arena. Mm-hmm. And that, that's great.
0: That's when you really make strides. Well, we're out of time, and Tim, thanks a lot for joining us. Guys, We've been wanting to do this yeah, for a.
2: This has been awesome. Thanks for. A, I'm honored to be your first uh, third wheel here. Yeah, so yeah. Thanks. So you'll right. come back, right? Absolutely. You do it again. Absolutely. All right.
0: Well, we really appreciate it. It's fun to shake it up a little bit and bring bring other people in. And uh, despite the snow and the sleet, we we did it.
1: Hopefully, we can get home.
0: Yeah. Oh, I looked outside. It's it's already it's Alabama snowstorm. It. Melts you within an hour or so. I think it's pretty clear now. Uh, you can contact us at akingsley at arcoc.com or Kaiser at arcoc.com. Twitter is uh, The66Podcast. Website, the66.net. Uh, what else? You said can, Twitter. Uh, I said Twitter. I said uh, a web. No Facebook page. Yeah, I would... Uh, Look us up on iTunes. Yeah, please write a review or at least give us some stars because that's what we need. Man, we're still we're still typing in sixty six and coming in like fiftieth. I don't know what that is. We're still behind the
1: Star Wars podcast. Yeah, whatever that thing is (laughs) and some other stuff. We are moving
0: up. Yeah, let's get let's get up above some of the you know R rated stuff or whatever. The the, you know, tell your friends. Are we moving up?
1: Yeah, we've moved up a little bit. Uh, I just got on. I'm going to confess. I got on my cousin's phone yesterday and got on the podcast app and gave us a five star review oh, on her phone. Nice, <laughs> because I just feel like we. I, it was my yeah. duty to get us up. Well, above. that
0: that one little thing just helps get us more exposure. We know a lot of you are listening, and we appreciate the comments that that you make. So. I uh, appreciate you following along with us. The next episode will be John chapter 5, so join us then.